Hello and welcome to Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Medin, and today we're going to be discussing an article from our February print edition titled 50 Years in Henrietta. I'm joined by Taylor Gothi and Jim Yarrington. Hi. Uh, Taylor is the author of this article. Jim, could you share real quickly your uh, role at RIT? I'm the university architect and director of planning and design for RIT. Great. Uh, To start off, Taylor, can you quickly describe what this article covers? All right. So this article is covering the 50th anniversary from RIT's move from downtown Rochester into the Henrietta suburbs and is exploring the decision behind it, the history and social climate of the time, as well as some of the architectural feats that we accomplished when we moved. Um, So for our listeners who may not have had a chance to read the article yet, what would you say uh, was the, the main reason for moving out of the city? Um, There was a multitude of factors, um, but the biggest one definitely was space. Downtown was going through a profound period of reconstruction, and there was a new highway that was going to split the campus in half. So RIT wanted the ability not just to expand for the incoming class of next year, but to expand for the next 100 years, and Henrietta was the best place for that. Um, So when RIT moved, uh, Jim, you may know the answer to this, was there a single vision for what the campus would look like? The campus was created really in an unusual way. Um, One of the trustees encouraged a collaboration of architects and they went through a selection process that um, formed a team of a number of the leading architects of the day. This would be the early 60s. And they worked collaboratively on the campus using kind of a common set of rules and rules about architectural vocabulary, and then they split the program up into different parts. So uh, one of the, the members of the team, Harry Weiss, said he thought it was the most successful example of collaborative work of architects ever. So uh, uh, Brick City is unusual in that way. So is that a cost-saving technique, or was was there a reason to get different architects to just make the same one style? Um, it's not a, if if you look closely, Alex. It's not as the same as you think. So within those that vocabulary, there are a lot of differences in style. So the Hugh Stubbins buildings over at NTID versus the Edward Larrabee Barnes dorms and res halls and Grace Watson versus the center of campus by Roach Dinklu, you can really see there's kind of a different theory in doing all the buildings, although at first blush they do look similar. Interesting. So it's kind of like a diversity within one family of, of style. The way I put it, it's an ensemble campus, so everything has to work together instead of a set-piece campus where everybody can just do what they want. So did the campus in downtown Rochester look anything like this? Um, I would say no. <laughs> I would agree, no. Flatly, no. <laughs> yeah, most definitely not. Um, I'm actually not exactly sure how the campus downtown looks now or what the buildings are doing. Yeah, there, there are a few surviving buildings from the original RIT campus. The Boys and Girls Club was an RIT athletics building. The Bevier Building, which is now mixed use down near the expressway. Uh, an arts and crafts building by Claude Bragdon. Um, the school district headquarters is a refacing of an RIT building. And, you know, from my recollection of seeing photographs, the styles are from the period. So late 19th century, high Victorian style and early 20th century kind of semi-industrial style. And then, as I mentioned, the Bevier building is really a very beautiful arts and crafts building. But 
as Taylor said, the highway blasts right through the center. So even in the surviving buildings, some are on the south side of the road, some are on the north side of the road. So if it looks so different then, and they, when they decided to move, why did they come up with this? And why the brick? You know, why this style? Um, from my research, it is mostly about um, conservation, especially with the heat. Like brick is very great for that. And that's also why they had the tinted windows. However, with um, advances in technology and glass, now we're seeing a more trend towards transparent buildings like you'll see in the upcoming Magnet Center that's being built um, early, complete being built early next semester. So it was kind of a cost-saving technique to have an insulated material? Well, the, the, I'd say it was a design decision, too. You know, and, and the, the style of modernism we have is nicknamed brutalism, and the evolution of that comes from the Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier and his Beton Brut buildings, which is rough concrete. Mm -hmm. And usually buildings in this style are concrete or precast hung on a concrete frame. So the brick actually is kind of more friendly and soft than many buildings of the period. An interesting way, you know, I think folks who aren't that interest, uh, knowledgeable about buildings and other campuses might not know that. But often it's just plain concrete. I know brutalism has a bad rap for being ugly, so <laughs> I know RIT is kind of happy we didn't go with the complete brutalism and went with the brick aesthetic instead. Yeah, and that, that brick is like kind of part of the identity on campus. Um, and I guess you more than anyone would know, is that going to be part of our identity with the new buildings moving in the future? We, we use the brick as kind of a nod to the original campus. So most of the new buildings, and Magic's a case in point, will have some, but not all brick. Uh, a lot of glass, as Taylor said, high-performance glass, uh, various uh, translucences, and panels, and, you know, terracotta in a natural color like we have on Institute Hall and which will come on the theater part of Magic is a different but compatible material with our brick color. So we're trying to mix it up a little. Uh, one of the architects who's done work here, Bruce Wood from KMW in Boston, said, well, you can't be trapped in 1968 forever. And, you know, I think for a while we kind of were, but the administration has really uh, empowered us and asked us to look at other ways of evolving our buildings in a respectful way with the original campus. So does your personal vision, if, if it were to be your choice entirely of this campus, include a lot of diversity of architectural types or? Yeah, diversity, but having the conversation with the original campus. So I think something that completely turns its back on the original campus, that's an architectural attitude. Uh, if you're familiar with the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto at all by Liebeskind, it's kind of a very uh, spacecraft-like structure crashing into a turn of the 20th century structure almost in a, in a rude way, I'd say. That's just not my personal taste. I don't think it's the way the conversation should go. But that's an architectural choice. I know when I was first looking at um, RAT online, I was very shocked by how uniform the campus looked. Um, back in California, a lot of the campuses like to make each building as different as possible, particularly Berkeley. If you ever look at those, every building is wild and different from each other. So seeing um, RAT with brick in every building and everything kind of having the same structure gives you a, like a sense of unity and a much stronger community than you would with other campuses' designs. And I think some campuses actually start out more uniform like us and then change. And I'm thinking of Stanford. 
that has, you know, the, the cut stone buildings of the original campus from the late 1880s, but has a lot of different buildings have evolved since. We're actually unusual and having tried to keep the conversation a little more rigorous, I think, among the architectural styles. You know, in the future, we'll judge whether that's good or bad. Um, one of the things about campus, uh, especially mentioned in this article, was that we're kind of trying to reclaim that urban uh, walking style, especially with areas like Global Village. Should we expect to see more of that kind of in the long-term plan? Oh, absolutely. I don't think anyone's talking about anything else. Um, We've kind of joked that our location with so many wetlands and then the highways and so forth around, we're surrounded by a moat of land and partly water. And so to create the lively campus, the kind of 24-7 campus that, that students need and want, we have to create it ourselves. And density, mixed use, uh, to some degree higher buildings, they all do that for us. Yeah, uh, and it's definitely a challenge to bring it because um, – being in Henrietta, we are very much isolated from the larger community in Rochester and some of that nightlife and jazz and all those other venues that we students would usually have in the downtown campus. We don't necessarily get here. RIT is doing its best to recreate that flavor, but it's also very hard to have that same feeling as you would get if you were back in downtown. And I know the transit service is doing, for the first time in a long time, a, a really comprehensive study of transit needs in the Rochester area. It would be interesting to see what kind of linkage ideas they come up with for buses or other means of transportation that would link us into the center city, you know, but on a daily basis. I think we've realized we have to create an environment here that's a, a rich and rewarding one for our community. Well, you mentioned linking to the city. Um, and I wonder, does RIT want to like recapture that relationship it had with the city? Is, has, has times changed in such a way that the reasons we left are kind of no longer keeping us out? Um, well, during the period of the 1960s when RIT left, it was a period when um, construction and highways into the suburbs was becoming a lot more popular. A lot of white middle class Americans who were having better jobs, more technical fields were we ex have a mass exodus from the city into the suburbs. And um, RIT saw that a lot of their customers, a lot of their people who would work at RIT, would go to RIT, was leaving. And that was also part of the trend, too, to go into suburbs where there was that new innovation, the new car culture, the new way to expand. But unfortunately, because of that, we also abandoned a lot of the culture in the city, particularly with um, the poor um low-income black and Hispanic population. And you still see that trend today. Like, Rochester is 95% black in the city, but the suburbs are closer to 90, 98% white. And there's that segregation that we still can need to kind of work on because we're Rochester Institute of Technology, but we haven't been part of the city for a very long time. You know, we do have a return to the city through our 40 Franklin Street facility, the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship. And that's also part of our um, really uh, venture creation process where some faculty and students may have an innovative idea here on campus and their labs evolve into venture creations on John Street, further evolve to moving down to 40 Franklin Street and eventually maybe a business out in the community or in, in the city around downtown. So. And the 40 Franklin Street Bank, which was a gift that we've been working on, is a major architectural landmark designed by McKim, Mead, and White. 
So, uh, so we've come back in a different way than we left. Yeah, and I know in recent years, like this um, beginning of the school year, there's a program called Rochester City Scholars, which tried to bring a lot of the students from the city into RIT to rebuild the city's connections. And we had our largest class of 50 students. So we're not only diversifying our architecture, but starting to diversify our student population as well, which is a good plus for RIT. Well, I'm glad to hear about that, but real quickly, I want to switch gears. Um, you mentioned wetlands earlier, and I know for a lot of students, we hear like, we can't build more because we're on wetlands, and no one really understands it. So do you think you could clarify a little bit what that whole deal is? Um, wetlands on campus, uh, when I came here 17 years ago, um, were defined by the Army Corps of Engineers, but New York State Department of Environmental Conservation also maps wetlands, which is a stricter designation. And so during uh, probably five years ago or so, we were officially mapped, quote unquote, and those wetland designations carry with them a non-disturbance area of an additional 100 feet around the wetlands. So it's honestly, it's just another planning parameter that you have to work around and work with. You can uh, affect the wetlands with DEC's agreement and then mitigate that, but it's complicated and expensive. So. Generally, we try to respect the wetlands and the buffer and work in the land that's not encumbered by those restrictions. I think a planning challenge for us is really how to sensitively expose those natural areas and let the campus use them and appreciate them. And that is part of our future master planning process is something I'd like to really see us address. It's a resource that a lot of places would kill for, and for us, it's just kind of there. We accept it. I think we could do a better job of using it and appreciating it. I know there's some interesting environmental factors when it comes to, it too. like, since the ground is so soft, we have to lay down several layers of concrete, just have a stable foundation, and the cause of sustainability <laughs> is kind of having a battle between um, making sure we can expand but still not be harsh on the environment. Yeah, the uh, subsoil conditions vary around campus. So the early buildings up on the ridge, first one in wins, right? So major projects since that are down in the flat areas that used to routinely flood before the Mount Morris Dam, we have to do pile foundations there to support the buildings, Taylor said. It's more of a challenge. Um, so we're almost out of time, but I have just one last question before we wrap up. What do you say to the idea of vertical parking? Structured parking? Yeah, garages. here on campus. Well, uh, it's very expensive to build. It's generally 10 times the cost of surface parking to build, and it has a different cost model associated with it, but we are talking about it. I mean, the day could come when we need to do structured parking to meet our needs. The day could come is all I needed to hear. That day is now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you guys very much for speaking with me today. Everyone out there in podcast land, make sure to uh, look in stands and online at reporter.rit.edu to see when this uh, article hits the stands. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we're at ReporterMag. Snapchat's also ReporterMag. And finally, as usual, I'm going to remind everyone to call rings. You get to call in or text in, and it's anonymous, and you can say whatever you want. And if it's cool enough, you'll get published in the magazine. The number for that is 585 672 4840. Thanks for listening.